Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to Happy Dog Takes on the World. My name is Karina Van Vliet. I am the CEO of the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, and it is my great pleasure to have this conversation with you tonight about military ethics. Uh, and so full, full confession, when we were thinking about bringing this topic of military ethics to the Happy Dog and talk about why it is so important, um, we, I was thinking primarily about talking about why the behavior of U.S. soldiers when they're deployed overseas, why that matters for our ability to carry out our missions overseas. And I was thinking about incidents like Abu Ghraib uh, and how that may have impacted what we were trying to achieve in Iraq. But um, as the um, news of the past weeks has shown, military ethics has real consequences domestically as well, including the resignation of Secretary of the Navy Richard Spencer over his handling of the case of Chief Petty Officer Ed Gallagher of the Navy SEALs. So I hope you will ask a lot of questions about both sets of issues. They're very complex. Uh, there's a lot that goes into military ethics, training, command roles, the dynamic nature of current missions, technology, you know, and altogether a very different operational environment for our men and women in uniform overseas. So thankfully to help us unpack all of these uh, complex issues, we have a fabulous panel tonight. Uh, all the way to my right is Jim Johnson, who's chief prosecutor for the residual special court for Sierra Leone. Lisa Lindsay, researcher at the Inamori International Center for Ethics and Excellence at Case Western Reserve University, and Grant Goodrich, executive director of the Great Lakes Energy Institute, also at Case Western. So to start off the conversation, I thought I would ask our three panelists, starting with Jim, to sort of tell you about um, their experience and, and how they come at this issue of military ethics. Okay. Uh Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you this evening. <clears throat> I suppose I come at this issue from a couple of different angles. Uh, first, I started off my career, and for the next 20 years, I was a military lawyer, <clears throat> also known as a judge advocate in the United States Army, retiring from my military service in early 2003. And so from that perspective of being both an ethics advisor in the military teaching ethics, teaching laws of war in the military, and of course a prosecutor in the military, among other duties. When you're an army lawyer, you do a lot of different things, but uh, that was certainly part of my portfolio in the army. Uh, I spent the next 10 years prosecuting war crimes as chief of prosecutions with the Special Court for Sierra Leone. Uh, we prosecuted, uh, of course, those crimes out of Sierra Leone and including former uh, president of Liberia, Charles Taylor. And uh, since I left the court, I uh, have been teaching war crimes and uh, at Case Western Reserve University, not teaching the students how to commit war crimes, but, <laughs> but hopefully teaching them how to identify war crimes and prosecute them. Uh, and then uh, very recently, I was appointed by the Secretary General of the United Nations as the prosecutor for the residual special court for Sierra Leone. And of course, as the residual special court, we deal with post-trial issues that come up for those that were convicted. So I come at this topic from a broad range of experience, I guess, having dealt with it in many ways, both as an ethics counselor, ethics advisor, and as a prosecutor in prosecuting war crimes. Lisa? 
Hi, my name is Lisa Lindsay, and I recently, just this past May, um, earned my master's degree in military ethics from Case Western Reserve. Um, it's actually the first military ethics MA program in the U.S., so that's super cool. Everybody should check it out. <laughs> I always have to PSA for that. Um, and I actually got into military ethics um, just through regular schooling. I got really interested in World War II very young, and that turned into something that became one of my academic passions. And I ended up in my undergrad years finding philosophy, and that gave me something else to really focus on. So through military ethics, I've been able to marry my loves for history and philosophy together to be able to talk about um, some conflicts past, uh, present, and possibly future as well. Um, my research mainly focuses on ethics education for enlisted members specifically. Um, there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things we talk about they're gonna have to do with that tonight. Um, but that's my main focus. Um, I specifically look at the United States Army um, most seriously at the moment. Um, and these are just all topics that I think everybody should be discussing. And I come from it from a purely academic point of view as well as just it's my general curiosity. Um, so I come at this from a little bit more like casual perspective than our other two gentlemen here. Grant? Hi, good evening everyone. My name is Grant Goodrich. I'm a 1994 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. I spent 14 years as an infantry officer in the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, a few different experiences that I have that tie into this, I think. Uh, I, I was an investigating officer with the Honor Code at the Naval Academy. Happy to talk about that if anyone's interested. Uh, in 1992, it, uh, actually at Christmas time right around now, was undergoing the EE Electrical Engineering final exam uh, in which my class was heavily implicated. Uh, in the end, over 100 different midshipmen uh, were implicated in somehow participating in cheating on the exam or sharing information or not disclosing to investigators that they knew or had information on the exam. Again, if you'd like to talk about that, happy to do later on. Uh, I was, as I mentioned, I was an infantry officer in the Marine Corps. Uh, graduate of Marine Corps Command and Staff College. And, and I come at this from two perspectives that I'd like to share with you. Um, if, if any of you have ever, ever read Kurt Vonnegut's book, Slaughterhouse-Five, in the, in the introduction, uh, he goes to visit an old war buddy, the author does. And while he's there, his war buddy's wife says, tell them, tell them that children fight our wars. And I, I hope that everybody thinks about that and understands that. I, I know as a brand new platoon commander in an infantry rifle platoon, uh, my platoon sergeant said to me at 22 years, fresh-faced, does your mother know you're here? <laughs> and just a year later, coming back from deployment, getting our new fresh Marines in straight from boot camp who are you know, almost 18 years old, some of them, you look at them and say, oh my god, does their mother know they're here? But it's, it's an incredibly important and poignant point. We have very young, very inexperienced people who are fighting our wars. And so when we talk about ethics and what we're asking people to do, remember that their experience set often is very, very limited. This is often the first thing that they're doing as an adult. The second perspective that I bring to this is thinking about our alliances. I, I was blessed in my career to have a lot of opportunity to work with uh, through bilateral exercises, multilateral and multinational exercises, working with partners and alliances. And I think about the, the, the men and women we got to serve with from other countries. And often, our alliances are built on a common value system. Uh, when you think broadly, alliances are built on either co common values, shared, shared democratic principles and values, shared 
Western, uh, in, in some cases, uh, shared Asian traditions, um, or they're based on realpolitik, just purely political goals that we bonded our countries together to accomplish something. But in, in peacetime, a lot of times our, our alliances are built on shared values, and you think of the trust and confidence we place in in partner countries from Germany or the UK or the Netherlands or France, and, and it's hard to imagine having that same experience with someone where you don't trust their government or you don't trust the relationship we have with their government. And I, I think that's a, a, a very personal but very real perspective that your average soldier, sailor, airman, or Marine may have in training and in combat. Well, so we've already got a lot just with the introductions. Um, but where I wanted to start this conversation was sort of um, with the current environment in which these decisions take place. And we hear a lot about non-traditional combat zones. We hear a lot about special operations uh, and, and, and sort of the, the, the different nature of the kinds of operations we're doing. And I'd love to have the panel's view on how is that impacting ethics, you know, and maybe Grant in particular, if you can share uh, concrete stories or examples of how this impacts the different environment, how that makes the, the decisions about what's right and wrong, does it make it harder in a lot of ways? So it, it, it does make it harder. And I, I would say what, what commanders in the field are trying to do today through rules of engagement is simplify the conversation and simplify the, the direction that's being given to, to young men and women in uniform. Uh, I, I was with 1st Marine Division in, in Iraq in 2004 and 2005. Uh, then uh, Major General Mattis uh, was our division commander at the time, and he had some very simple, straightforward rules. First, do no harm. Uh, no better friend, no worse enemy. If you'll, you'll look this up and you'll see this. This was something that was repeated over and over and over and over again. Um, because you, you, again, we're often dealing with units where the entire age of the unit is 25 and under. And so your, your directives, your commands have to be simplified. And I was thinking about this with a, a specific example from Iraq. Uh, I, I was going out on a patrol. We were expecting a, a road rebuilding project that we were doing in our area of operations. Uh, the platoon leader was a 21-year-old sergeant, uh, a regular college student at University of Texas, Austin, a reservist who had been mobilized and deployed to Iraq, and he's running a combat patrol. And as we're headed out the gate, we get a call on the radio uh, that the regimental commander's patrol had just been uh, attacked by an improvised explosive device. Uh, a roadside bomb had, had detonated. No one was hurt, uh, only light damage on one of the vehicles, and they had kept going. Uh, but we were asked to, you know, check it out and see what we could find. Uh, and I, I remember this incident of, you know, that they found at a neighboring junkyard, they found a, a, an Iraqi man, you know, middle-aged, probably in his early 40s. And you, you have no concrete evidence. And, and we're in this moment right there where you're asking a 21-year-old to decide what do you do with this individual who may have seen nothing, who may have been in the wrong place at the wrong time, or may have been responsible and done everything. And so the, the dilemma and the decisions we're placing in the hands, uh, again, of, of you know, very talented but, but also very young and inexperienced people is tremendous. So simplifying is, is something that's very important that we have to do. Uh, a lot more than I can say about this, but I'll, I'd like to hear from the rest of the panel too. 
Um, so I love that you kept bringing up their age grant um, because that is, is a very important point and a lot of the people that we do put not only in uh, just frontline infantry positions but people that we put in command positions are often very young and often very inexperienced in general let alone in um, a military setting. So that, that's troubling, that's very troubling. Um, and to take your point of uh, simplifying the ROE, I like that a lot um, in order to make things more Sorry, straight. ROE, rules of rules engagement. Rules of engagement, yep. thank you. Um, <laughs> we're, we're going to like spell out all the military <laughs> acronyms for you tonight. The one non-military person here used military acronyms, sorry. Um, so in simplifying the rules of engagement, I think that's definitely good in order for people to feel like they're making more straightforward decisions. But from my perspective, I always wonder how important is it for those young you know, men and women to be able to understand why they're making those decisions or why their decisions are being pushed one way rather than another in terms of what they're prepared for. You know, possibly it might be just a little bit to mention a little bit more about in the sense of what rules of engagement are. Because you said, I mean, rules of engagement <clears throat> are, you know, hopefully where you're trying to give that soldier some very simple rules to follow, as Grant has said. But rules of engagement are not controlled strictly by the laws of war. They're not, con the rules of engagement are a combination of what's required under the laws of war, under international law, under our domestic law, but they're also very much uh, worked into rules of engagement, maybe the political objectives on the battlefield or military necessity on the battlefield, in the sense that, you know, one of the earliest rules of engagement, you, you, you're probably all familiar, well, maybe most of you are familiar with the phrase out of the American Revolution that said, don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. I mean, that was a basic rule of engagement. But why was it a rule of engagement? It had nothing to do with the laws of war. It had nothing to do with that. It was just purely that the weapons were not accurate. And the weapons weren't accurate. If you could see the whites of their eyes, you had a much better chance of hitting your target than you did for any other reason. So rules of engagement, as I said, are, are, are a way to bring down to reality what those young soldiers are trying to accomplish on the ground and give them some very simple basic rules that they can follow. Um, I might differ one thing than, uh, you know, with what Grant said. I mean, uh, you know, talking about things are harder now. And, and from a very basic sense of right and wrong, when you teach ethics and you teach morality and you try to go to your, what your soldiers on the battlefield can do, or, and of course the battlefields are very, very varied today, and, uh, you know, there is a right and there is a wrong. And, and sometimes that's a hard thing to teach to soldiers, and of course that's what, what Lisa is very much working towards on how to, how to teach that to soldiers. But there is very basic a right and wrong, and we can't forget that. Some things are just plain wrong. Yeah, so before we get to the issue of training, um, as, a, as a news consumer, one thing I've noticed about the way wars are covered these days is there's an immediate media feedback as to what's going on, including when there's incidents such as Abu Ghraib. And so, Jim, I'm wondering from a, an accountability perspective and a command and control, once there is an incident, how does this immediacy of, you know, sort of like the, the, the combat, the battle space in your living room, how does that impact the ability of the military establishment to do due process and to investigate? Oh gosh, that's, uh, let me kind of think about how to address that and maybe take a piece of it. 
Um, certainly, uh, I believe, and it has certainly been my experience, that the, and it goes back to this question of what's right and wrong, and some things are just very wrong, that uh, the American public expects our soldiers to do what's right. I mean, this is a, this is a discussion beyond what's required in the Geneva Conventions and what's required under international law. I mean, yes, there are some very basic rules when, you're, when you use the prison example, the, and there are some very basic rules of how you can treat prisoners of war, and you cannot mistreat them, you cannot humiliate them, you cannot put them up to public scrutiny, you cannot do all of these things. But when you look at ethics, it often goes beyond that. It goes to the impression that the legitimacy of your military operation and what you're doing. And if it comes back in the living room that our soldiers are out there committing very, very questionable acts, committing potentially violations of the law of war, this not only takes away the legitimacy of the operation and our military in the eyes of the public, but you mentioned our alliances, Grant mentioned our alliances, and those in our allies, and those that we're fighting with. And they have to depend on us to do the right thing. We want to set ourselves out as the leaders. We want to be able to say that we can take the moral high road. And this extends down to every level. Um, and so, so, so I'm just curious on this issue of whether the, 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 the reason why I'm asking this question is I was reading some articles about uh, this Ed Gallag the Chief Petty Officer Gallagher case. And one thing that his lawyer said was, um, we should really look at the high tempo of overseas operation and lack of proper support from failed leaders that were undermining discipline within the SEAL team units. And so is there something about the pace of operations these days, or is it just a, qu a question of like training's not keeping up with the current demands? Is it an all-volunteer force? Like, What are some of the issues here that you see at play? Perhaps Lisa. I'm not too sure if it has to do with things going necessarily faster or being more complicated now. Um, I'm sure that's at least part of it, but there also might be a little bit of um, just confusion over end goals um, in terms of what is it that in a certain conflict in a certain country that the United States is attempting to do? What is your end goal when you're there? Because if you don't know that, then that is going to be very hard for you to be able to inform what you're going to be doing along the way and what kinds of things you're going to need to be teaching people along the way so they can get to that goal. Um, so in terms of accountability in the meantime, um, it may not necessarily be the, the fast pace. It may be the fact that information can flow in so many different directions now. And as you mentioned with the media, things can pop up on Twitter feeds immediately, on cable in a couple hours. Um, if you know somebody overseas, they can send you something immediately. Um, you might not have the context with those kinds of things. So as people who are consuming this type of information, I think we have to be a little bit more wary of um, jumping to any kind of conclusions from it. But for people who are within that structure, able to see that information. Um, they're going to have a little bit more access to maybe where it came from and what it could mean. Um, but it's still very important for them to be sure about it before making any kind of, um, I guess, statements about it, for sure. I, if I can add something. I, th I think one thing that we have to remember is that, uh, as we've seen, especially in our Middle East battlefields over the last 19 years, almost 19 years, uh, and yes, it's amazing that we're 
counting that many numbers. Um, rarely do you describe an enemy, and I'll put that in air quotes, uh, wearing a uniform that is part of an official unit of an officially recognized country or nation uh, that is following or, or adhering to the law of war uh, in the ways in which we in the West uh, or we in, in the United States have come to do so. Uh, and I always remember this question that was posed to me in training when I was at Quantico. Uh, the instructing officer had said, you know, you see a woman uh, wearing a hijab, she's carrying a basket, uh, runs behind a building, drops off something, and some, suddenly, you know, somebody starts shooting from that building. And he said, I'd call her a logistics officer. I mean, that's how I see it. She's a foreign combatant who's supplying somebody in that room. Now, again, in the context of what's coming back in social media or in live newsfeed, it's very, very difficult to, to ascertain what just happened right there. And the evidence on the ground may be a woman in a hijab without a basket at that time, without anything in the basket. So you know, what do we do with that piece of information? And I, I present that scenario because it, it is some of the very challenging and difficult scenarios that our, our military service members are encountering on the you know, on the ground in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, where the, this grayness of what's, what actually just happened and how am I supposed to react and how do my rules of engagement inform what I do at this point become very, very difficult. So how are we training our military to handle these situations? Do you want to take this first? Um, as far as I'm aware, in the in the United States Army, um, a lot of the ethics training is, I refer to it as trickle-down, is kind of what they're going with. Is So they train for a lot of really wonderful officers, and they have a lot of really wonderful resources for training officers particularly, um, but there's not a lot for enlisted members. The assumption tends to be that a good officer is going to make good soldiers, and as we all can probably guess, it's not always the case, unfortunately. Um, and I think that it's really important actually for enlisted members, especially as young as a lot of them are, and even uh, non-commissioned officers can be very young themselves as well who are getting some of this extra ethics training. Um, but they need to be made more aware of not only the consequences of what they're doing, but of the, of the severity of it and of what war really is. And I'm sure it's something that you can't um, explain to someone fully who hasn't ever been there or for someone who's never been there to really understand it properly to the full extent. But giving, giving these, younger, um, these younger Americans who are talking about specifically um, ethics education in terms of telling them why you can't be doing certain things and respecting human dignity as, you know, regardless of who that enemy might be or, or who, you know, you're fighting alongside or against, um, every person has inherent dignity and that's something that needs to be um, understood a little bit more and also kind of ingrained more rather than is treating people as um, possibly a means to an end or um, early assumptions based on maybe, um, I know the non-combatant combatant distinction is very difficult when you're looking at someone wearing um, a certain outfit, carrying a certain thing, you might be tempted to think that they are a combatant, that's someone that you can shoot at. But there's other factors that soldiers need to be taught to consider and one of those might be um, not necessarily patience, but just a little bit of extra environmental cueing and seeing um, what other things can confirm their, uh, their notions about what kind of environment they're currently dealing with so they can better ascertain what actions they actually should be taking. And, and if I can add to that, I, I, I do think it's important to mention that 
you know, rules of engagement can change day to day. They can change week to week. And, and so, you know, when, when we talk about training, uh, you know, before going out on missions, routinely and repeatedly, you will see units going over the rules of engagement for that mission, you know, starting with wh what are we trying to accomplish today, uh, you know, and, and in preparing for any deployment, you know, what's the bigger picture, bigger picture mission that we're looking to accomplish? And so starting with the big picture, breaking it down to what are we trying to do today, breaking it down to what are the rules that are in play for today. Uh, and I, I apologize for using that phrase, in play, but I mean, in, in many ways, it's, it's today, this is what we're doing, this is, these are the conditions. Uh, and, and you do a lot of, uh, a lot of drilling with uh, you know, identifying a weapon in someone's hand and being able to shoot, identifying no weapon and not being able to shoot, very much like you know, police drills that have been done in the past. Um, and, and again, that, that depends and changes from situation to situation as to you know, what are you allowed to do. Um, but it's going through different scenario drilling uh, that you know, you, you're trying to teach quick reaction, quick identification of the, of the threat and quick response. And that, that's, that's all you can do is continue to drill and continue to, to emphasize and repeat, you know, th this is, these are the rules that are in place. So there's a huge, so there's a huge role. So there's a, if I'm understanding correctly, there's a lot more emphasis on ethics training for officers versus enlisted. And does this, how does this tie in with command issues, especially when you do have incidents and then you're on the prosecutorial side, Jim? Well, I, certainly officers do receive more training. Um, but you know, as, as Grant has mentioned, I mean, then it's up to the officers to pass this training along and to train their soldiers or Marines. And uh, that's part of their responsibility as they move forward, as they prepare their unit to go to wherever it's going, to go to the battle zone, to, to do the mission that they're doing. It's up to the officers. And, uh, you know, and that training has to take a variety of, of types. There's your basic classroom training. But the training that really soaks in is that training, on, uh, actual training on the ground where you put them in an actual situation, a mock situation as such, to try and teach these, these identification skills. Um, you know, maybe to go back a little bit to your question before on, you know, the operation tempo mm -hmm. and, and things like that. I mean, you know, there's, there's always this talk about what's the fog of war. And that, you know, and the fog of war may enter into this picture when you're trying to identify the example that Grant said. You're trying to identify a weapon in their hands. You're trying to do that. But then again, the fog of war does not come into play when you're dealing with prisoners, for example. Those that are under your control and that have become protected persons under the, uh, under the laws of war, under the Geneva Conventions. There's no fog of war there. Mm -hmm. There's no operation tempo there. But there again, commanders have to be diligent to be able to identify those in their units that may be stressed out, that may be losing it, so to speak, that may be more likely to do something. So it is certainly a command responsibility in that sense. But, um, but you know, there's, like I said, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And uh, there is a gray area, but wrong is wrong. And so uh, when you're killing a prisoner, that's wrong. There's no, there's no excuse for that. 
Yeah. And uh, you may say that, uh, you know, you may try to identify that maybe sentence should be considered when uh, trying to identify what's the proper sentence for doing that. Maybe all of these other factors may come into play to some degree, but it's wrong. Yeah. Um, so I want to make sure we open this up to your questions. So I'm going to ask one last question. And if you, uh, for those of you who want to ask a question, the microphone's right here if they come back on. So we'll turn this around. If you want to just line up uh, and, you know, formulate your questions. And so I guess my last question to the panel is, so why does this all matter? And I know, Jim, you talked about U.S. moral leadership and the importance of us having high ethical standards in in how we interact with other militaries. How does this play in when we have to operate with militaries who don't have the same kind of ethical standards that our military does? What kind of problems does that pose for us? And ultimately, you know, what does this mean for the U.S.'s role in moral leadership in the world and our ability to go out and execute on the mission that our men and, um, our men and women in uniform have been entrusted with? I mean, I, I'd like to start because I, I, I would like to go back to Abu Ghraib. I, I don't know how many of you remember the images that came back from uh, Abu Ghraib was a U.S. controlled prison in Iraq. Uh, the soldiers who were running the facility uh, took pictures of them uh, doing all kinds of things with Iraqi prisoners, piling them, you know, forcing them to strip, piling, asking them to get into big body piles, taking photos. Uh, there was a lot of ob obscene photos that were taken and that were shared uh, in posts back home and that ultimately made the news. And if you think about how we, how the U.S. military operates oftentimes, we, we have always pledged, you know, if you surrender, you will be taken care of, you will not be harmed. Who, who, who surrenders to a, a U.S. unit after seeing that picture posted uh, on the Internet or shaved or shared on Al Jazeera or in their local newspaper. I mean, that became incredible propaganda for the Taliban, for uh, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, for Al-Qaeda in Iraq, to say, I mean, this is what the Americans are going to do to you. Are you going to, th this is this, this godless force that has invaded our lands. Are, are you, don't, you know, fight to the death. Don't surrender to them. It's better to be a, a suicide bomber. So the, the implications of sending a force that is not prepared to, uh, to fight uh, by our values, according to our values, are, are enormous. They, they, they have consequences for everything that comes after. They have consequences for our reputation as a nation. They have consequences for our reputation as an ally. Mm -hmm. uh, and they affect how people think about us. Um, to, to, to go to your question about how, how do we work with people who we're not necessarily, uh, where we don't necessarily, necessarily share values, uh, again, I, I think a, a common goal, uh, if it's understood by everyone, we're here to do this. We are here to overthrow Saddam Hussein. We are here to protect these resources that belong to the Iraqi people. We are here to do this. As long as that's clear for all sides, you know, people can often work very hard together to get a, a common goal or common objective done. And kind of uh, jumping off what you were saying about common goals, I think that um, when the United States military is engaged in any kind of operation anywhere where um, other countries are involved, which is most, if not all, of our operations right now, um, we also have to consider that 
we're acting not only with others, but we're also sometimes acting on their behalf. So when you're in a situation, you could be saying that you're actually acting on behalf of the people of a country that's not the United States. That's an extra obligation that you have to take into consideration. So you're not just acting for yourself. You're one person, you're one unit, you're one country. You're acting for others as well. So you, that makes your actions even more important. Um, and I think that the United States military actually has some obligations to its own members as well to prepare them for these kinds of things. So if you're you're sending people overseas to do things, they might not understand other cultural values, um, other languages, other other systems of commerce, that kind of stuff. Um, that falls in the United States military to help prepare them for those things so that if they do end up um, overseas somewhere, they can have a little bit of a better grasp of um, the the importance of not only acting up to you know regular standards, but knowing that they're acting on behalf of other people, um, and just keeping in mind that all these things do end up coming back around eventually. You know, I, I can't add a lot to what they've said. Maybe except just hey, it's the law. I mean, you know, <laughs> our obligation to obey the laws, to obey the Geneva Conventions, the Hague Rules, customary international law as required by our Constitution is not contingent on someone else obeying it. We have to, we yep. obey it. So with that, because I'm just a wannabe journalist, I'm sure the better questions are going to come from the audience. So you're up to the mic that doesn't work. <laughs> okay. Um, hi, good evening. Um, my question is about the psychology of military ethics. I was a student of, doc of Professor Zimbardo's, and we studied Milgram extensively. Uh, the psychology literature is extensive and long. I feel that the Abu Ghraib proves that the lessons of the Stanford Prison Experiment and the Milgram studies have been either ignored, forgotten, or both. Whatever bulwarks were up against immoral uh, or unethical acts have eroded to spotty inactivity, ineffectivity at best. In light of decades of study and psychological evidence, what needs to be done, what could be done, to bring us back to our better angels, and why isn't it happening? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm chuckling just a little bit at bring us back to our better angels, because I'm wondering when or where that was. Um, that may be a cynical comment, but that's just what I thought. Um, and the, the one thing that I really like to point out about the... Milgram experiments is that the statistic that gets thrown out all the time is that two-thirds of the people electrocuted the stranger in the other room. But guess what, guys? That one-third of people didn't. That's one-third of people who didn't. And I think that's like the silver lining that we need to remember. So there, there is still hope. Um, so while it may seem now that things are eroding and you know, it's hard for people to make good decisions. I think really what it is is that we're just seeing a lot more of it now. Um, we have greater access to information. Um, people transmit things a lot faster. And I'm not sure how gossipy people were, were you know, in World War II, but now people are pretty gossipy. So they want to know what's going on everywhere, and they want to have opinions about everything. Um, things are really, you know, everything seems to be a hot topic. So um, in terms of the, the psychology of those things, I don't think they've really been forgotten, but I think that when bad things do happen, they're so bright that it's really easy to not see some of the good things that are still going on. Um, so while I obviously am a really big proponent of ethics training, ethics education, um, I don't necessarily think that it's gone downhill from any previous point in time. I think just kind of our, our lenses are a little bit different now, um, but that doesn't change the fact that these questions 
are still really important. You know, maybe I just want to add too, to, to what you said. I mean, the, you look at the topic that we have tonight, we're focusing on where it's gone bad. And, and we're not talking about the vast, vast, vast majority of our soldiers, Marines, sailors, and airmen that are doing exactly the right thing. And they're doing everything they can to, to meet their obligations under law and elsewhere. And so, uh, so again, because we tend to focus on the negative here or the bad things that have happened, don't let us overlook all the good that's going on out there with our military. Sorry, I, I would add uh, two thoughts. Um, I, I think in, specifically in the case of Abu Ghraib, you know, what we learned from that is that there was leadership failures at, at multiple levels uh, of the chain of command. I, and I, I do think that one of the things that we have traditionally done well as a military establishment is to hold the leadership accountable. Um, and I, I think that is an incredibly important bond that the American people have had with their military is that when things get screwed up, uh, we usually see people held accountable. They are removed from leadership. They are removed from command. Uh, and they are never given those chances again. And I, I think that's, uh, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's not very fair. Um, but I, I think that's something that is at the bedrock of the trust that we, the American people, have with our military and that continues to need emphasis. Um, but I, I think to the essence of your question, you know, how do, how do we go back to the good old days? Uh, the good old days, let's keep in mind that the foundation of our view of ethics in this country is built on a Judeo-Christian foundation that is changing. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say eroding, it's just it's not as prominent as it was as a percentage of the population, as a basis for how people have been raised as a collective nation. Uh, and today we are much more multicultural, much more multi-religious uh, and multi-ethnic uh, than we've been at any time in our history as a country. And so there is a huge uh, burden that is placed on the military leadership to imbue a common ethic uh, in our fighting men and women to say this is what we view as good and, and wrong and this is how we are going to conduct ourselves uh, on and off the battlefield. And uh, th that, that's just where we are today. Uh, you, you can walk into units uh, across the country and say, well, this does not look like where I come from in Northeast Ohio. Uh, as a young platoon commander, uh, almost 40% of my platoon was from Mexico because uh, I was assigned to a unit out in California and that's where my Marines were coming from. Uh, they were Californians or New Mexicans. Uh, some of them had yet to be naturalized. Um, but uh, again, the, the, the military is often that, that first generation coming into our country looking to build a better life and looking to, to, to do it by wearing the uniform of the United States. Uh, again, th these are changes that are going on in our society that require that the units really do a lot of training uh, to imbue a common ethic and common value. All right. Hi, good evening. Uh, thanks to the panel for uh, this informative discussion. Uh, and I know it's been a great conversation on more at the tactical level. Uh, I just wanted to try to step it up and ask, well, how do we assess military ethics at the operational and strategic level? Mm -hmm. And since most work at that level, especially security force assistance, noncombatant evacuation, stuff like that, happens at the behest of the State Department, 
at what point does the State Department get held accountable for military ethic of ethics violations? Thank you. Perhaps a quick definition of tactical operational strategic, just for those in the audience. Although it seems like most people know what you're talking about, Lee, but. <laughs> so t tactical, uh, typically, what, what's going on in front of the unit that's engaged in the battlefield or engaged in operations? Operational uh, can be a, a countrywide engagement. It, it can be. You know, if we think about the operations in Iraq as one operation, operations in Afghanistan as another, and then strategic, we start to get into how the U.S. conducts foreign policy through the military in a theater of operations or, or at the national level. Um, and I, I apologize if I've uh, butchered that at the edges. Um, I, I mean, my answer would be I, I don't – if you're in the military, the State Department is never on the hook for how you've – conducted your operations. I, I think the, the often at that level, the conversation gets to what is our Congress, what is our National Security Council, a National Security Advisor, what is our, our president, how have we entered into this operation and what are we being asked, we the military being asked to do by the American people through their elected leaders. I, and I, from my perspective, that's ultimately, that, that's where the rubber meets the road and that's where accountability exists. Uh, because I, I think, again, it's our elected leaders driving a, a particular action at the strategic level. It's then the State Department and Department of Defense executing those directives or that guidance uh, and, and it, it, it's coming downhill from there. I, I do think it, it's, I, I think it's a great point to bring up because, uh, again, as we get into an election season, we're going to talk about a host of things, and foreign policy will rarely, rarely come up. And as we've had a few candidates on the fringes try to bring up, uh, you know, endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, you know, how we're dealing with Russia and Ukraine, foreign policy has rarely been a, a topic of how we have decided elections. But maybe we should get more involved on that topic, and maybe we should ask our candidates to tell us more about their foreign policies when we're thinking about voting them in or out of office. No. No. All right, next question. I'm gonna be real nice to you. Based on my age and my pre-draft birthday and 1SH qualification, I chose to go to college rather than the University of Southeast Asia. Back then, one-third of my civil engineering cohorts were ex-military, and they had a joke. How do you tell who the enemy is? You yell the hell to hold team in, and if he shoots at you, you can shoot back. Bringing that to today's situation, how many of the five stars or the civilians flying the desk would like to be the point man on that type of patrol under those rules, or worse yet, order their sons to go out and be the point man on that type of patrols? Thank you. That's you again. <laughs> That's me yeah. again. Um, you know, I, I, one of the challenges that always happens with long gaps in America's fighting experience is that you lose that memory of what it meant, what it sounded like. Uh, I, I was I was very blessed as a junior officer. My company commander had just come back from uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, was involved in the invasion in Kuwait and uh, communicated to us uh, a sense of urgency every day about preparedness 
and being ready. And I, I, I'm very fortunate for that, for the training that I received and the training that was imparted to me and that, was, that I was able to impart to my Marines. Um, uh, I was also fortunate to have uh, then Colonel Mattis as my regimental commander. And if uh, I, I just, he, he would always put the fear of God in everyone that uh, the next invasion, the, the, next, the next big one, whether it was Korea, uh, that was always at the top of his list back in the mid-90s. You know, Korea was going to happen at any minute, and by God, you better be ready. Um, the, to your point, it's a different environment today. Uh, cameras are clicking everywhere. Um, those photos are being sent home. I'm sure there's there's not a five-star today. I, I'm sorry. I'm sure that the five-stars today would prefer a military environment where there there aren't cameras and where you can... You know, what happens, happens. Um, but because there are cameras, because there are reporters, there is a higher degree of accountability that our military is held to. Uh, and I think ultimately that's a good thing for how we conduct operations. Um, I go back to the no better friend, no worse enemy point. Going into Iraq, uh, part of the mission was premised on this idea of you know, we, we will be welcomed in as liberators by some of the people, not all of the people. And we can certainly debate that all night long, but that was, that was a train of thought that existed. But in order to keep that friendship open, it certainly required treating the Iraqi people with respect and dignity, uh, protecting what needed to be protected. Uh, and that was perhaps a, a very important point that needed more emphasis and maybe more understanding by the five stars and the people in the five-sided building as to what they were asking us to do. Maybe just only to add that, um, you know, you can't train for every possible scenario that may happen. All you can do is train the basics, train values, train morals, and uh, they're going to have to make, and then trust your soldiers to make the right decision on the ground. Yeah. Okay, next question. All right. Uh, Grant, I can tell you, as a Gold Star father, mothers and fathers know where their kids are. Boys, girls. I'm sorry. Um, you touched on this, but... Earlier, someone said there's a lack of control, total control over ethics in combat or on, in a combat zone. How do we get the lack of control? This is tangential to military ethics. How do we get that lack of control translated into decision makers that put boys and girls in harm's way? Uh, it's not really military ethics. You also just mentioned that people on the campaign trail, we have to ask them what their goals are in terms of foreign policy, in terms of military, use of military. When they say that on the campaign trail, whatever their view is, there is a, such a thing as groupthink, that when they all get together, they make a different kind of decision. Uh, to me, what this discussion is very informative, but it's a cart before the horse in terms of why we go to war anyway. 
your comments are welcome. It's not really a question. So sorry, may I just ask you meant your first question about how there's how control is put into the structure of the military, right? Not lack of control. Training right. So, so how is control and structured? Mm -hmm. and the right and wrong. There's a right and wrong. That's a control apparatus. How do we control the decision makers that put the military into harm's way in the first place? Mm. Oh, sorry, I had it other way around. <laughs> you know, we, we talked about. I, I I like that Lisa introduced her remarks by saying she was a big fan of history, and I. I think one thing that we have to continue to encourage people to do is, is read their history and study what happened. Um, I remember uh, having just selected Marine Corps, I was taking uh, a history on World War II. And if you read about the history of the German army going into Russia, uh, they went in with 3.2 million soldiers uh, in arms and about seven months later they had had 750,000 casualties. And when you ask uh, you know, you look at the experience of the German army going off to World War One. Within a few months, the officer corps had been decimated, uh, and and the the quote was the the German nobility would never come back from World War One because they'd all been killed in the first few engagements. Uh, and so, in in some ways, asking our leadership to understand that what you're asking for when you send young men and women off to combat um, may not come out quite as nice and neat as you presented it to the American public uh, when you made those decisions and that it, you know if you meet a determined enemy the enemy has something to say about what happens on the battlefield so I would encourage our leaders to read their history and be mindful of history um, I, I, I know this is um, uh, already a bit cliche but you know uh, Secretary Mattis uh, and I, I'm sorry to invoke him so many times today uh, but in his book, he talks about the value of reading. I, I never and, and probably never will meet someone who's read so much and who valued reading so much and who required his officers to read as much as they did. But the comparison that came out of a president who didn't value reading uh, versus a, a general and a secretary of defense who said, I at least could always draw on past experiences to inform me as I was making a decision in the current scenario. I, I think that's an example that we should ask all of our electeds and all of our candidates to aspire to. Because I think it, you'd much rather try to learn from the pages of history than with the blood of American men and women. Very well said, thank you. Um, good evening, Grant touched on this a minute ago, but to the panel, what has been your experience working with young soldiers who are foreign born but are now getting their citizenship through service in our armed forces. Did you do that, Joe? Don't know that I can from experience. I, 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 had a, a, I had two or three Marines that I worked with who were going through the citizenship process, and I, I would say um, <laughs> in, in every case, uh, it was always difficult. Uh, as soon as you started the paperwork, you were getting ready to deploy. Uh, you were then deployed and your paperwork was interrupted for six or seven months and then you came back and often you were in the middle of rotating to another unit. You're trying to restart your paperwork. Uh, your case officer might not be the same case officer anymore. Uh, and so 
the normal speed of the immigration process for uh, a Marine or, for, or a soldier who is back and forth on deployments to Iraq or Afghanistan or to Korea or Okinawa or somewhere uh, doesn't work. It, it's a process that's designed for someone who's, you know, who's got a year uh, after they, you know, come back who can do all of those things. Uh, and so I, I just found that the, the op tempo and the pace of deployments made it incredibly challenging for many of them to get their paperwork done. And they often finish their four-year enlistment without having completed that. But were they good soldiers, basically? Oh, every time. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you might talk a little bit more about the history of military ethics. I mean, you've, you've alluded to the idea that uh, you know, what we consider right and wrong today is maybe different from what was considered right and wrong on a battlefield in the past. And I was just wondering if you could give us some more specific examples of when uh, things changed. You know, what was it? Uh, what, what were there particular actions that were you know considered right or wrong uh, during the Civil War that by World War One were considered okay? That in Vietnam were considered you know okay, but now are considered wrong? I mean, you know, because it seems to me that all of this is a historically bounded phenomenon. It's not, you know, we've been saying things are right, things are wrong, but that's, a lot of that is historically contingent, I would imagine. Well, that's a semester-long class. <laughs> uh, certainly, you started seeing the vestiges of, of conduct in war in the American Civil War with the Lieber Code, whether it be the Battle of Solferino in Italy, which I think was 1864, which out of that came the first Geneva Conventions for dealing with sick and wounded on the battlefield. So you really started to see this progression, I would say, in the mid-1800s going forward, uh, which came out, you can't, you, you're looking at the Hague Regulations of 1899 and 1907, which started dealing with what's a legitimate target on the battlefield the requirement for military necessity, what are legal and legitimate weapons on the battlefield. And that progressed up through starting after World War I. You saw the Geneva Conventions renegotiated again because of effects on the battlefield. You saw the first attempts after, and, and I'm running through a laundry list in them very quickly, and I apologize for that, but you saw the uh, coming out of World War I, the first attempts to control going to war. Because you remember before World War I, uh, war was an extension of diplomacy, and war was an annexation. Conquest and annexation was part of the way of the world. And coming out of World War I, you saw the first attempts to make going to war illegal. And uh, then really coming out of World War II and the experiences of World War II and uh, the Holocaust and things like that's where you started seeing the advancement of... Um, Human rights, and uh, and the human rights, the Declaration, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the human rights covenants that came out of that, and again leading up to what both controlling how we fight and why we fight, and so really I would say the mid 1800s was when you started to see it really developing up through today, and after and yes after each world war you saw significant attempts to control going to war and to controlling 
to protecting the victims of war, not necessarily the combatants, except for, except for in the sense of what are legal weapons and things like that. After World War I, you saw the 1925 Chemical Weapons Convention, which outlawed mm -hmm. chemical weapons. After World War II, you saw the Fourth Geneva Convention, which dealt with occupations, right, uh, exactly from the experiences of World War II. So in a sense of the grand history of things, this is a fairly modern phenomenon. I guess I, I, I found that very interesting, but I guess I meant it in a more individual kind of way, that if you were, um, you know, if, if military ethics were something that were being taught to soldiers, uh, in earlier wars in the way that you've been talking about it up to this point, like you are an individual soldier and have to make a decision right now. Are there any kinds of things that are, you know, I would imagine that during the Civil War they would still say, yes, it's not a good idea to shoot the woman carrying the basket Sorry, into... I'm sorry? Pass. All right. Well, moving on from the Civil War into the question of uh, yeah. perhaps Lisa has yeah, training actually, I have about a really good answer over time. To this. I'm really excited that you asked that question about history. Um, and Jim gave a really good explanation of some of the um, legal history behind military ethics. But from my point of view, uh, military ethics is actually something that's been going on for thousands of years. And that's something that I've learned is it started with a lot of Judeo-Christian positions. Um, and it evolved. And then uh, military ethics can actually be found in warrior codes in culture all over the world. So this is something that for time almost immemorial people in Japan or people in um, Argentina, like they could all have their own warrior codes. And these are things that have existed throughout time to tell people what you can and cannot do um, in terms of treachery, in terms of what kinds of weapons you could use. And I know that we have all sorts of legal things now where you can't use chemical weapons or biological options. Um, and those things are, of course, very, very important. And we need to keep hold of those legal um, structures. Um, but our ethical structures are just as important, but those ones are a little bit more um, immaterial. They're not like hard and fast, like we have that. We have the Hague Conventions, we have the Geneva Code. These are things that are found um, culturally through literature, through history writings. And if you were teaching someone military ethics, you know, 100 years ago or today, you could still go to some of those codes and go to some of those things like you wouldn't uh, shoot someone who's wounded or you wouldn't shoot someone who does not have a weapon um, or, you know, th things like that. Those kinds of things are still common throughout history. And I, I really want to push for the, because I saw a lot of head nodding that um, I don't actually think those things have changed too much. I think that morals are something that, have gone on throughout time, and maybe the way we express them is a little bit differently, and the way we codify them legally is differently. But these moral imperatives have always been there, whether we recognize them as um, clearly as we do now. Uh, I, I would just add two things. Um, I, I think, fun fact, uh, everybody knows the name Baron von Steuben uh, from your Revolutionary War history, but you know he, he was the, the, the Prussian who came to join the Revolutionary Forces and brought order and code and discipline to the American forces. And it's interesting, as our Continental Army becomes our first US Army, he wrote the first uh, order on code and discipline for US officers. And so that originates with that name. And so you know, around the holiday table, you can throw that around. Um, <laughs> you know, but you, we think about our Revolutionary War history. You know, the British would complain that Americans 
or the, the colonists or revolutionaries were not dressed in uniform, that they fought from behind uh, walls and trees and not in a traditional way. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, much as Lisa said, this, this has long been a part of history, this, this fog of war and, and needing to teach who the enemy is and isn't. Um, but I, I do think for the American service member, there, there is this inflection point that's very prominent in our cultural history, cultural military history of going from a period of total war with World War I and World War II, and, and in 90% in of the way, Korea as well, to what was a far less certain and far foggier Vietnam War experience where the enemy was often not wearing a uniform and was very hard to define day to day. Uh, I mean, in, in, in many ways, part of what is so challenging for the service member coming back from uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, I mean, I, my unit in Iraq, I, I don't know, th there's probably not more than a dozen or two, two dozen people who would actually say they ever saw anyone shooting at them. But that doesn't take away from the people who were out at night planting roadside bombs and mines on the roads and who, you know, caused casualties on our side. And so this, you know, we, we never saw the enemy, but the enemy was all around, it is a very real and challenging problem. So we'll take the last question as part of this conversation, but as you can tell, if you want to come up after the panel conversation and ask questions, I'm sure our panelists will be happy to entertain them. So last question, please. I'm, I'm very interested, I've had two, but I'm gonna limit it to one, it's just the Gallagher thing. I, I would love y'all's perspective on we have these rules, we have laws, and they were violated, and the president stepped in. How does that impact how we are able to hold people accountable to things like the Geneva Convention, to war crimes, et cetera? How does that impact not only us on the small scale, in the mic, uh, when it comes to individual soldiers and holding each other accountable, et cetera, but also to the broader fact that when it comes to the International Criminal Court, like we have always said that we will hold our own accountable, and here is an example of us not holding our own accountable. So what does that do to the broader system of alliances and integrity of the United States? Um, Big I think broad you, I think you answered a lot of your question <laughs> in the question, quite frankly. Um, certain, and, and a lot of our comments here this evening about, you know, what do we want to take the high road or do we not want to take the high road as a country? And, uh, and, and these are some, some, some very large concerns. That's right. When you look at, the, at uh, our obligations to prosecute under international law, uh, when you look at the very concept of the International Criminal Court, that will not take cases, of course, we're not a member of the International Criminal Court, but one of the tenets to the International Criminal Court taking jurisdiction over those cases it has jurisdiction is that if the countries are taking care of it, if the states are taking care of it themselves, then the International Criminal Court does not have jurisdiction over their crimes. So there's an obligation under international law, and I won't go into specifics, but to try those who commit these crimes. And if, and in many cases, depending on the crime, if you're not going to try it yourself, then you have to be willing to extradite those people somewhere who will try the case. And as long as you're taking care of it yourself and investigating, and where 
the investigation says there should be a trial and further action to go forward with that. And so it very much goes to an image that we want to send as a country, that are we above the law or will we comply with the law? And, um, and of course, one of, the, one of the biggest enemies of the military justice system is command influence. Whether that command influence comes from, uh, from encouraging a conviction or encouraging an acquittal, the military justice system to function has to be fair, it has to be seen as fair, and there cannot be influence from the top, from command influence, stating how a particular case should come out. And so uh, it, it's how do we want to be seen as a nation when it comes to these kinds of issues? Uh, Grant? Um, I, as, as, uh, as Jim had said, I feel like you uh, kind of explained some of the answers to your question in, in the question, which is, which is a good thing. Um, this is something that's going to be around in the news for a while, but I think that um, mainly it's just the making sure that we're acting as a nation, not only in the best interest of all of our allies, but of, for ourselves as well. Um, and in this case, we're not acting in the, the best interest of anybody and not holding people uh, properly accountable. Because when you lose that, you're going to lose trust. And you're going to lose trust not only from the American people, but from other nations as well. Um, and just being um, being in a position where possibly maybe we're not able to help or we're not allowed to help or trusted to help in situations where our just physical firepower, our prowess, our military prowess would be useful. Um, maybe we're not going to be invited to the table anymore for these kinds of things, and that can have long-standing effects that I can't even speculate on at this point. I, I think one of the things that becomes a challenge for our nation when we, we, have a, we have a president who frequently does not elaborate uh, at great length or, or at any length at all as to why decisions are made is that we lose the, the qualitative nature of why something was done. I think an explanation that would be offered to say, I, I understand and respect the decision of the military court in this case, but I have decided to use my constitutionally appointed powers uh, to commute or eliminate the sentence of this person would, would at least help answer some of those questions. We would understand that we don't have an undermining of the military system, that we've embraced the military system, but that the president is, is acting within his constitutional right. Uh, without that explanation, we have the other interpretation which is not helpful, which is that I don't trust the military judicial system I do not trust that the Uniform Code of Military Justice has been implemented in this case in the way it should be. I have lost faith and trust and confidence in our ability of the military to hold its service members accountable, and so I'm interceding in this case. And I, I think a lot of the way in which this has been talked about has suggested that approach, and that's very damning, uh, because then it, it does say, well, it gives other countries that, that pause and that reason to ask the question, well, why are they out of the ICC? You know, why is an American included if they're not going to hold their service members accountable? Uh, I, I think it's very concerning for us as a nation, and I, I think we do need our leaders to communicate uh, not just to the American public, but, but globally. This is how we hold our, our military members accountable when bad things happen, and how, in this case, 
uh, how and why this decision's been taken. So with that, I think we've had a very profound conversation. I hope it's left you with a sense of why military ethic is important and why it matters, and also a sense of appreciation for our men and women in uniform um, and the good things that are happening. I would like to emphasize that point again, the many, many good things that our men and women in uniform who are serving for us are doing. I'd like to thank you for your participation tonight, and most importantly, I'd like to all of us to thank our panelists.